Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider. I'm Simon Taylor and I'm uh, I'm joined by, well, the CEO of CYBG, Mr. David Duffy. How are you doing, sir? Good, thanks. Good to be here. Thank you so much for joining us on Fintech Insider and thank you for uh, being back on the show. You were briefly on uh, during the HMT uh, Treasury event That's uh, right. last year. So uh, really good to be involved. Um, first question before we get into the real banky stuff. And since we're on a podcast. Yes. Do you listen to any podcasts? Do you have any favorites? Um, I do. It's a, it's a mix. Um, I have the FinTech Envoy role as well as the bank role, and I mix. I have FinTech Insider, of course, mm-hmm. um, and not just to listen to myself. Um, <laughs> I was going to say. But, but uh, also Wharton um, have a very good yes. uh, podcast, and, and it's got a U.S. dimension, so I like to just sit outside the world a little bit. Um, and then I use the FT because it's highly correlated to some of the business topics. And then I, I tend to pick up a lot of stuff randomly. But The Economist would be a source of, mm-hmm. you can listen to The Whole Economist on, on a podcast effectively. Um, you know, you can. Absolutely. Uh, so so it's, it's a mix. I like to just have variety. And then every now and again, the team sends me something interesting from Asia or somewhere around the world. Oh, so, cool. But I have that staple diet and then I, I diversify occasionally. Uh, where are you listening? Is it um, commuting, traveling? What's the? Yeah. Um, I just don't have an ability to sit there vacuously in a taxi or yeah, yeah. I have to have something to distract me. So, But it's usually uh, on the commute in in the mornings. That's I always do podcasts. And then uh, train journeys are a great source of time to be able to do that. Indeed. We were talking before we got started about mm. productivity and train journeys. We'll come back to that <laughs> one. But for international listeners, uh, remind us who CYBG and Virgin Money are. Okay, so uh, Clydesdale Yorkshire Banking Group, that's to spell out CYBG. Mm -hmm. So you had Clydesdale Bank, which is a big Scottish bank, and then Yorkshire Bank, a big bank in the north of England. Mm -hmm. And what we've done is acquired Virgin Money, which is a a, a Virgin-branded bank. And and the three of them come together, and what you've got is the sixth largest bank in the UK, Mm -hmm. Uh, so crafted from the combination of those three, with a big emphasis on mortgages, but obviously a whole SME capability as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So two very complementary banks, very little redundancy, products they had, products we we had, put them together, and you got a fantastic opportunity with scale, distribution, technology, and the brand. And we can talk about this. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's interesting. We've seen uh, historically in the UK market, you see uh, banks like uh, Santander especially, but also Sabadell and others have become quite proficient at acquiring um, sort of several regional banks and collating them into one. Um, we also saw a little bit with uh, LBG, uh, Lloyds Banking Group, yeah. they did that sort of post-financial crisis. But also... Releasing the efficiencies from that and getting the dream is always hard. So mm-hmm. let's step through just like integration. What, is, what does that mean? What does that journey look like? And, and how are you thinking about that given where you are in that journey? Gosh, it sounds like a regulatory question. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's a lot easier than some people might think. When you do an integration, it's usually systems and big platforms and, and, and it gets complexity. And the beauty of this transaction is that we have no real systems integration. So you're, you're talking about, in effect, customer transfers to platforms. They have a great credit card platform. They had a much bigger business, and they put it on a great platform. So we'll transfer our customers onto that platform. Oh, I see. We have a big mortgage platform which can take the capacity, so we will transfer as those customers come due onto our platform. So think of it as papering customers from one platform to another, but no platform integration. So that takes probably half of the threat you would have had with risk and complexity of any integration. The other great advantage we have is the two cultures are highly uh, synonymous. So they're both customer obsessive. They both have a a tech DNA Mm -hmm. built into how to deliver that to customers. 
And putting those two together, I had them all together in the room last week as the first leadership combined entity. And I have to say, it was like I couldn't tell the difference between one versus the other. So that's an enormous advantage because that's your DNA. That's the core culture of the bank. And it's very, very natural to switch between the two entities. And I think that's interesting because when organizations combine, the obvious fear is where there were two jobs, there is now one. But the reality is there's also a lot more customers to go around. So how have you found sort of um, bringing that sort of human element together? Well, I think we, we communicate to the whole bank every week uh, in video and written format. And then I tour constantly. I was saying to you earlier, I'm in every location. Well, we, I think you, you communicate with honesty. That's the starting point. Mm-hmm. There will be job losses. We've advertised those, but we'll try and manage it through attrition. But what we focus on is that's, that's part of this. But the goal to deliver the best rated bank in the UK for customer services with the best brand and the employer of choice, all those, those lofty ambitions, they're real, they're tangible and achievable. So whilst on the one hand we have to do some things which can be a little bit negative, we'll try to mitigate them, but they're massively outweighed by the enormous opportunity of the combination. I think that's what excites me when I look at the Virgin brand. It's synonymous with really cool stuff, mm-hmm. right? So um, Virgin Records, I was... Uh, I'm. A, freely admit I'm a nut for the airline, right? I, I just think it's a different experience and there's something that they do. And and if I may be so bold to give a personal opinion, I always thought that it never quite lived up to it on the banking side, <laughs> but the I really love that you're publicly communicating intent to do that. But my question is, how do you even start with that? How do you go about making something that you know was historically quite dull and boring and everyday mm-hmm. like banking and make that something that can feel like wonderful and differentiated in some way? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So Virgin Money is a brand that was in banking in the family of Virgin brands. We're looking at the brand as more of a lifestyle brand. So it's not synonymous typically with banking. Um, and if you look at the broader group, it's much more a disruptor, fun, as you say, it focuses totally on the experience. It's coming up to 50 years old uh, next year. And what we've got is massive investment from galactic spaceships, you see, to, yeah. to you know, 19 new hotels, four big cruise ships. Mm-hmm. There's a massive investment in all the different. They're buying probably Flybe in the UK, so you'll have yeah. a full national UK airline. In addition to Virgin Atlantic, they're buying the trains, trains in, in, in the UK. They have them also now in the US. So there's a massive growth of the brand and investment in the brand on experience and customer value. We also have open banking and all that's happening there. And what we see is the opportunity is to be national, under that brand, less banking, more lifestyle. So really offering a range of activities, not just banking activities. Being able to take up to 60 group companies into our banking platform to offer services such as opening an account and you can get Virgin Active membership or you can, mm-hmm. you, maybe you can go to the moon, you can make a choice, you can stay in a hotel, you can fly in a plane. Yeah. And uniquely in banking, we're going to have a loyalty program that they're developing now. So hopefully that completes successfully. And that means all of your things that you have in your life from Virgin will count for value and give you value back. Nobody in the UK can offer that combination of open banking platforms integrated in your single brand across the platform of banking products and with a loyalty program. Could be very unique. And I think there aren't many examples, possibly Amex, but there aren't many examples of where that's been done well. So I think it is quite ambitious for that reason. But also, we're now in a a new world. You know, Monzo just passed 1.5 million customers in the UK. Starling's well over half a million on their way to, I think, 750,000. Even new entrants like Plum, a a chatbot through Facebook Messenger, over 300,000 customers. You know, is the goal for you guys to be acquiring new to bank customers? Do you think the existing customers will love the service you're bringing? Because this feels very lifestyle, almost 
older generation, dare I say, or, or sort of mid-working age generation rather than younger. Is, is that a fair assessment? Or? It, it's, it's in a massive mix because you've got retail and you've got SME. So most of what you're talking about as competitors don't have SME really. You know? mm, that's fair. And it takes a long time to build that. Uh, and I think you, we have 180 years of deep history in that. Um, so you have those kind of multi-generational relationships. But we expect to acquire new to bank very quickly uh, and in, in, in significant scale. To give an example, we built uh, a B brand. So our digital brand for CYBG is B. Mm -hmm. And if you look at that, it is over 2.2 billion of deposits. The entire customer base is primary bank account mm -hmm. and they have multiple products. Now, all of the competitor universe and the newer banks are single product really in substance. Um, what level of, of, of primary bank? You know, uh, I, I don't buy customer volume in numbers. I ask profitability of customer mm -hmm. and who is primary banked. They're the two simple questions. If I'm an investor, I look at it that way. Yeah. You know, how many of your customers are primary banked and how many of them are profitable? If you look at what we have, because we have the full suite, we have the national brand, we have every product capability, we have the leading tech stuff. So we were first to open API, first to aggregation, first to check imaging. We're going to deploy, deploy world-class technology in a ubiquitous brand with every single product, and we've proven we can do it faster than all the NEOs in a way. So I think our growth will be massive in the new space, but it'll also be across the full suite of SME and retail, mm -hmm. not limited to a particular product or a particular account. Oh, I find that exciting because uh, as an observer, what I see is... Uh, I think a real ambition coming from from your direction, but also the challenger banks now definitely moving into the SME space more and more, and also their economics uh, because they've built a very modern platform from the very bottom. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think Monzo published their economics um, that it's something like fifteen pounds to acquire a customer and five pounds a year to service, mm -hmm. and they're seeing an average um, income per customer on just a current account of sixty pounds. The profitability there and the unit economics, even on their existing book, is, is phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And they don't have to do a lot to really um, push that harder and start cross-selling, but they've, they've focused on, on that one thing. But yet, they're some years away from it. So as yeah. an observer of the market, I think there's a real opportunity to sort of push back into that. So do you think it's going to become a competition about price? or service increasingly? Because I think the last 10 years, the price comparison yeah. websites were very much, you know, it's 150 pounds to switch. It's, we've got the best rate in the market. Is it now a service game more and more? I, I think it absolutely will be service, but it's going to be combined with price and it's going to be combined with convenience. So you need all three. Okay. So you've got to have a brilliant service, which is deploying the world-class technology to make that possible. But you're also going to have to have the experience, which includes physical. Mm. I'm a bit wary of the pure play digital models. I think the, the challenges have been a fantastic experience for a lot of people in building, you know, challenging the business and building new ideas. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, you have to be able to provide, particularly in a world of cyber and all that, you have to be able to provide comfort of physical, but not like the old branch style, but as a place mm. to go and touch and feel and get advice and, and understand your bank with world-class technology, with a phenomenal experience in the access to your products. Dare I challenge your point? Yes, you um, may. <laughs> uh, in the world of Amazon, do I still need the physical branch? I, and I, can't, I, I grant you um, buying um, goods is quite different to buying a house mm -hmm. um, and seeing a person, but can I have a human relationship without having a physical presence? Um, you can but they can't be exclusive one or the other. So if you Not look at Amazon, they've, they've gone to Whole Foods and they started putting stores all over the place. Mm -hmm. They're talking about bringing stores into the UK. So 
It, it, it is about understanding your customer. And in banking, banking is not buying toys on Amazon. Mm -hmm. It is about life and meaning of credit and protection of your wealth and trust in your finances. Mm -hmm. And you absolutely have to have a physical dimension. We put a big four-story building in Market Street in Birmingham and equivalent size in, in, in uh, the, the main streets in Manchester. We don't put them in there to do old brand, bank branch activities. They are about the brand their lifestyle, their co-working spaces. Interesting. You could do yoga at eight in the morning in Manchester if you wanted to. Okay. Uh, one thing I may not do as a CEO. Um, but, but I'd you, like to see that, uh, well, <laughs> Yes, um, mammals and lycra, we know the story. Yeah. But, but effectively, what that branch does is acts for SMEs and primary sort of capacity mm -hmm. as a co-working space, as an education space, and as a, as a learning space in general. And that's a very different purpose. So I would say the physical piece is important in that context, in your community, as well as brilliant technology inside that store and in general, and the experience of you know, value and service. You've mentioned SMEs a couple of times, and I think that's a really interesting sector because I look at the small business sector as probably the most underserved in the past couple of decades, in my opinion, as somebody who's partly founded a small business that's grown into a medium-sized one. Uh, the, the bank account offerings that have been around historically are typically a consumer's bank account, um, yeah. but with a, with a fee for the privilege of being a business. How do you... Uh, is it is it the physical presence or is the stuff that you can do inside the product as well kind of uh, beyond the lifestyle and physical presence? Are you thinking about those things? Because I imagine, yeah. you know, uh, you mentioned open banking, for instance, uh, uh, increasingly small businesses living there, live inside their accounting package. They That's their dashboard on, on life. Can I afford to make payroll? Quick check the accounting package, not so much the bank. And is open banking a threat or an opportunity in that instance? I think it's a huge opportunity for us. If I look at the retail versus SME, and you talk about, you know, I don't know, some examples of 60 pounds or whatever mm -hmm. it is, we have many thousands of pounds of deposits per primary bank account. Mm -hmm. you know, so you have a very profitable and, and, and attractive business there where you provide lots of services in retail. SME is quite different. It tends to be liability-led. So mm -hmm. the SMEs tend to have deposits with you and then borrow at the right time. Mm -hmm. They can be very seasonal where they need an overdraft. They tend to be in the small space, which is where we operate, also the owner of a business in the high street, a pharmacy or a doctor's sure. clinic. They have a family and they have a retail need. They have a property need. They have a business so need. It's a real blurring of the lines. So it's, it, it's always been. And the, the, the fallacy of the big bank rhetoric is that there's an SME and there's a retail customer. Uh -huh. There isn't. There's, there's a, a small business customer who lives their life and they have a whole bunch of different needs, That's including retail. So we've had 180 years of lending with deep specialism. And the one cynicism I would have, not to be ever negative, but you don't build an SME business with a bit of algorithms in one year. Mm -hmm. The risk cycles and the expertise in sectors is what people need to understand you can deploy. So a farmer understand, wants to know you understand their business, not just this year, but what's happened in the last three economic cycles, what happens to seasonality. Year, exactly. seasonality. So, yeah. so that business is fantastic, but it's not just SME. That's the package. And in there, we've rolled out technology, which is part of our B platform, where access to the revenue, Sage accounting, all those different services are interactive. Invoice discounting is another one we're rolling out. Mm -hmm. So you can live and act and manage and deploy all the things you need to do in your business on your time. The last piece I would say is those SME customers whilst we service all the retail needs, they quite often come in to a, a branch of some kind for guidance and advice on building their business, not for a loan. And people confuse that. Absolutely. So coming into a sectoral specialist and having a talk with like-minded individuals, coming into a seminar on agriculture, very valuable. 
they are very happy to do most things with technology. So we, we deployed a, a fintech, which is straight through. Mm -hmm. So an actual live example of someone who had a, a substantial loan applied for at 10 in the morning and by four o'clock in the afternoon, they were funded without talking to the bank. Mm. And they upload their own documents. Now it used to be weeks and weeks and weeks. Yeah. But a same day application and funding, uh, it could be nine o'clock at night on a Sunday you do it. Yeah. Um, you don't have to be in a bank. You don't have to send anything to the bank. You upload it all yourself. So that person can do a farm at nine o'clock after dinner on Sunday, can do all their financial management of their business, fully integrated in technology. And after the farm the next day has had the funds in it deployed, they can pop by the office for advice on scaling you know, what's happening in, in Europe and how can they scale the business. Interesting. It's bringing all that together and it's a bit naive to just say, well, I'm going to be able to do this because let's say I have an algorithm or something. Yeah. Um, it is about the human being at the center of a business and making their life convenient and low cost. They're time poor. Yes. And make, making it really convenient with technology, but also making expertise available that they can trust and they can rely upon. So I think that, uh, that thing consistently comes out when we talk to customers is that um, that human connection is critical regardless. And if I can self-serve a lot more, that's super valuable. But where is the human interaction in that? And there are, there are interesting points when a human wants the human. Um, so like, no matter how much a computer tells me it's okay to press the button to send you know, a deposit for a mortgage, I want a person to tell me it's okay yeah. too. And, and, and that's consistent uh, is throughout consistent. all surveys. Uh, but but I, I do see maybe those lines start to blur. Um, but it, I think we could talk about that forever, I'm yeah, sure. We, but we, I want to move us to the next to. point, which is, um, I guess you mentioned the integration there with the fintech, which mm -hmm. I found super interesting. Uh, and of course, you sat on HMT's uh, fintech panel um, and uh, you know, we've been involved in uh, helping select some fintechs get funded. I think actually we were both involved in, yes. in that at some point. So. One, what do you take away from those experiences? And two, what do you see the influence of fintech on the, on the UK market? Um, it's fascinating because I'm looking at it as an envoy more in the space of tech rather than fintech because mm. there's also a blurring. Labeling can be a little unkind at yeah. times. Um, and what I'm seeing is much more the evolution to collaboration because you know if you're realistic, there's been very few unicorn fintech solutions in, in the UK, You know, not at the volumes we'd like versus the volume of fintechs. And collaboration is, uh, you know, basically banking, the big banks got bigger. Mm -hmm. So despite all these great successful stories, big banks are still getting bigger and they're deploying their own digital banks. So, so how does a fintech stand when it's time poor, capital poor, you know, uh, uh, resource poor? So I think if you can work smartly where your proposition, which does solve a problem brilliantly for a customer, is better than what a bank can deliver. So the bank just stops what it's doing and takes you and helps you. It doesn't have to take you over. It doesn't have to buy you, mm -hmm. but collaborates with you. And that gives you scale and competence, which then can be deployed in a broader sort of suite of customers. So I think that, that collaboration works. I don't think it's just at fintechs. So we did... Uh, Easy Bob on the SME space that I talked about. We did Salary Finance, a joint mm -hmm. venture we just announced. More moving down into the disintermediation or inclusion space around yeah. uh, some of that. But we also did a joint venture with PayPal um, at the big tech. Yeah. And I actually think that the, the collaboration at FinTech will become the norm. Mm -hmm. And I think partnerships with big tech will become the new frontier where everybody's scrambling. Oh, um, interesting. Because they will deploy, they could take the bottom 75% of a bank today and replicate it just like that. Yes. Because of all the distribution, logistics, and technology, and processing, and capability, and payments, which yes. is a huge part of any bank. 
all that's been done by big tech firms already. And if you just put a bank and a big tech firm together, they've just got distribution and brand at the top. That's the only difference. So, uh, and uh, yeah, and they've got all of the all of the tech, all of the knowledge, not the regulation. But how long does that moat last for? They're already working on it, and I've spoken to many of them about what they're trying to do on that. And the appetite may not be high, mm-hmm. um, but there is a, a a a model absolutely which can be worked out where they do do the entire logistics of the bank, and you focus on customer brand and data. Mm-hmm. And you take the advisory risk, and they provide distribution logistics. So wow. if that comes together, and there's no guarantees of anything in life, mm-hmm. but you can be absolutely sure that those big tech firms are beta testing in China and India for scale, for deployment in markets like ours. Yes. So it'd be naive. And so I think, to not think about that, so I think where we're sort of operating as a bank is we want to have a lifestyle brand where we deploy banking in a very, very different experience-led way, and we want to partner with people which allow us scale at minimum cost into the marketplace or anywhere else we want to go. I've not heard a a bank CEO really view big techs as a potential partner opportunity Mm -hmm. in the future. And I think that's quite uh, quite revolutionary, dare I say, in terms of what I've heard. Yeah, I know, dare I say it. I think because typically it's it's the threat um, mm-hmm. that you hear about that they'll come and disintermediate. But actually, to see that as an opportunity, I think it's a really interesting model because they they have so much capability. You do see people talking about maybe we'll use the cloud platform, but mm-hmm. you know to to think what a Virgin brand could do in that space yeah. is, is really really compelling. Yeah, very exciting. How can Sam afford the latest smartphone while she's at university? It must cost her parents a fortune to send her there. Oh, she's fine. She can just borrow the cash and pay it back when she bags a high-powered graduate job. Well, the tuition fees alone must be nearly £30,000. Well, she'll be earning a lot more than that after a couple of years. But imagine starting your career with £60,000 worth of debt. Hmm. Yeah, you could buy plenty of smartphones with that. Millennials. Future consumers or debt slaves. Don't settle for black or white. For the full perspective, turn to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com forward slash join us. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. i got to move us to um, the, the giant elephant in the room that's yeah. called Brexit. Yeah. Um, have you, well, you obviously must have discussed how this affects CYBG going forward. Um, and, and has there been impact to your business? And, and how are you thinking about the next two, three years with, with uncertainty in front of us? I, I think it's very straightforward. We're lucky. We're just a UK bank, so we don't have all the complexity of overseas and what do I put here, what do I put there? So just put that aside. Ours is about what is customers' behavior going to be? What is their appetite for borrowing? What could be the decline in repayments yes. of loans? So what the does that side, mix yeah. look like? Um, and it's, it's relatively straightforward. It isn't that Brexit's now a surprise to people and their behavior is going to change. We've been working with customers for a very long time to manage this. What you will see is, and have seen, is SMEs stopping investing because uncertainty is a big limitation. So mm. 
where, do I hire those people? Do I know how this is going to work? What, what is my mm -hmm. estimate of my own sales volume? So there is a little bit of limiting capital investment, uh, that sort of thing. There's a concern about immigration in general because there's a lot of seasonality workers, that, you know, in stock picking or crop picking, rather. Yeah. Um, that sort of thing, creating uncertainty and cause for pause, the, people are slowing down. So that is that ripples through the economy. So that's not a, a great answer. Hopefully, it'll be short term. Mm -hmm. Almost any answer is a, is a good answer at this stage. So, <laughs> so whatever it is, at least provides a sense of direction. On retail side, you, you will see there's a high level of debt in, in the households in the structure of the UK. Yeah. So there will be a conservatism about taking any more debt on. You're seeing a large slowdown in volumes on mortgages. So that's what's going on. People are, are just pausing. Yeah. Until they know something about the future a bit better than they and, do today. And you mentioned mortgages. Um, we've seen a couple of kind of warnings about margins being squeezed. Mm -hmm. If we can get nerdy for a bit, the NIM is, is kind of um, nerdy. nerdy. Yes. Yeah, let's, uh, the, the net interest margin between you know, what you can make from deposits yeah. and, and what you get from the long-term value of the lending um, and, and how you can manage that from a treasury point of view in a, in a bank. Um, and of course, the competition with base rates being low, some large lenders in the market uh, looking at you know, potential uh, you know, innovation around can you help the family to get to the 100% mortgage and all of this sort of thing? How do you see the mortgage market playing out? And, and what does it take to uh, you know, really sure that up? Or you know, is there space for innovation there? And what does that approach need to look like? Yeah, I, th I think the market is very tough. Um, if you look at the next few years, you've got big banks deploying ring fence surplus liquidity of upwards of 100 billion. Mm -hmm. Law of unintended consequences. And it can be deployed at any rate because it's better than no rate. Yeah. Yeah, that presses margins. You've got Brexit and the volumes means that uh, there's more people chasing less mortgages, so that yeah. compresses the margins. Uh, on the funding side, um, you you have to do more expensive MREL as part of regulation now. Yes. You have to take TFS out of the uh, world, which is the term funding scheme with cheap lending. Yes. So you had a model in the past where plenty of growth, plenty of mortgages, um, and no ring fence liquidity surpluses sitting there, cheap financing, and everyone was you know running along and fine. All of that's changed, so there's mm -hmm. a real competition, real pressure margins in an environment where interest rates aren't rising just at the, at the moment. So that puts a lot of pressure on. So a low-cost, incredibly high-service uh, model is the starting point. And then deploying innovation around that for value for the customer in terms of other services that come. Mm -hmm. So we think of it as not doing mortgages anymore, it's owning a home. Yeah. And when you're going to own a home, you're going to look at, hopefully, Virgin Media. Um, mm. And I know what's that, and is it moving? You're going to look at a relocation. You're going to look at a fit-out of the house. Do you need surplus funds? You're going to look at the house itself and the mortgage you're deploying, and a whole load of other services around life mm. when, you when you want to own a new home or move to a new home. And we're looking to build all of those services into the equation for persons. So you're going to get phenomenal service. You have to leave with that at a very competitive price with the full value equation of all the other things together. So that's a competition model mm -hmm. which we'll deploy for yeah. now. And, and I think the value conversation is always an interesting one about uh, if can I give you, the customer, more value, therefore can I be more valuable to you as, as an area to grow? But also you have to look at the other side of the book, which is then I must also need to attract deposits to be able to, to keep doing yeah. that. So the consumer side must be still really, really important. And I guess the value conversation plays plays a really important role there as well. Yeah, it does. And, and, you know, we look at, unless you can come up with a proposition where you can gain an income and create value for the customer, for starters, you don't have a business. Mm -hmm. Then you have to go and ask yourself, what level of volume growth do you want to achieve in that? And then you go back to your point of, can you fund it and what the cost is? Yeah. And you revisit the equation. Um, we have, because of our mix, SMEs is, a, as I said, liability-led. So typically two, two pounds of a deposit for one of borrowing. 
and that, that, that uh, average cost of borrowing is much cheaper than in the retail space. You put the model together as a mm -hmm. franchise and actually you manage, manage your balance sheet optimally in the round. And so may, mainly funded by retail, yeah. uh, mainly you know, who don't have a lot of wholesale funding, and also having a, a big dose of SME in the mix. And I think you can create a much better structure. And a standalone provider of a single product finds that much more difficult to do. Indeed. And, and speaking of this, you made me think of um, Marcus by Goldman, uh, which yeah. I thought was really interesting in the market because they, they obviously, uh, their motives in the market have, have really kind of been from coming from a different perspective. Mm -hmm. they, they really started Greenfield, mm -hmm. but also they had an extremely simple product uh, mm -hmm. that it, you know, there's no transactional capability within the product. You have to link an account. So from yeah. a reg perspective, it was mm -hmm. really clever in terms of how it was able to attract deposits within that. And as a beachhead, I think they ended up with something like 100,000 customers in 24 hours. It was, mm -hmm. it was absolutely insane growth. Um, and I think at the top line, people thought it was the rate, but yeah, actually it was- a discounted rate after a short period of time. Uh, yeah. But it was also the simplicity and and, and some things that people missed. So how are you thinking about uh, where rate plays a role versus where, you know, if you were to pick one, if I made you pick rate versus um, kind of service, are you leaning more towards service or more towards rate? I think as a multi-product bank, you lean towards service. Yeah. You know, you're not always, if you if you want to grow a business, you can always go to best buy rates on every single thing you have as a business, and then you know what, you get no returns to your shareholders. Um, yes. And you're not serving the customer well. Um, the, the Marcus model, you know, I remember from year 2000. Yes. It's a very simple model. ING Direct did it. Yeah. They had nothing. They only opened ING Direct where they had no retail businesses. They plop it on a website, connect your account, deposits in and out depending on flexibility, and here's a special rate that's 1% over everybody in the market. Yes. So it's not new. It's actually a copy of that. Yes. Um, and I regard those as things as fashion followers that they happen and then they go. Um, if you're looking at that as one component of six legs of a strategy you're deploying in the marketplace, okay, that's a different equation to think about. But for me, it, I looked at the rate, I looked at the discount in the tiny print, and you know, that's always the way with everything. And I said, okay, that is important. It's a good thing to test the market, see behaviors. Yes. I like that kind of innovation, actually, but it doesn't have a bearing on how we look at you know, our total balance sheet that's irrelevant. Interesting, interesting stuff. So um, we often like to talk about the, the banking battlefield um, that's kind of emerging, which is why I've been prodding for sort of some of the, the new entrants in the market. How do you see sort of, um, so we talk about four types of people on the, on the battlefield. So you've got the uh, sort of the incumbents mm -hmm. uh, with all of the customers and all of the money, um, but probably facing competition headwinds. Uh, you've got the brand challenges. I would have put yourselves in there, but you're sort of too big to be a brand challenger anymore, um, but sort of coming up for more customers, but uh, have been around for many years and, and have uh, kind of been, been you know, a number of organizations evolved. Then, you know, kind of in the far distance, we talk about the, the big techs, the, mm -hmm. who, are the, you know, who are those players? And then you've got the sort of the fintechs and the challengers. And there's sort of this um, question of like, where's Nirvana on this battlefield? Mm -hmm. Is it um, towards the, the tech side? Is it towards the fintech side? Um, I imagine it's somewhere in the middle. But the, the question it brings is, you know, where would you prefer to start? Where would you want to be? And, and where would you want to get to? I'm hoping yeah, that yeah. dynamic makes no, some sense. It makes great sense. And, and the answer is, unsurprisingly, where we are is, I think, the only place I would ever want to be, and which is why we contrived to create it. You want a brand that is not a legacy-tagged brand in banking. It is a lifestyle brand with a lot of innovation and mm -hmm. disruption and service DNA yeah. and a national capability. 
And then you want to have all the products. There's no point in being a brilliant uh, alternative challenger if the, you have one thing and they have to go, so they shop in a supermarket, but they'll come all the way across town for an apple. <laughs> how sustainable is that question? Also, I don't think that a critical mass of the challengers have created a profitability model mm. that gives them the, the ability to generate capital. It's always raising capital. So how do you create enough scale and volume I need to, to send you that? a blog post on that point. Um, so on, I, 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 that, that's, that's my pet peeve, and I apologize for pulling you up on it because it's, I, I, there's a very good chance, in fact, a 99.9% .9 chance I'm wrong and, and I'm going to be schooled. So be, <laughs> beware I'm taking this risk. Yeah. Um, but the, the blog post by Monzo suggests that their uh, average customer deposit is over a thousand pounds per month, and that their profitability is sixty uh, is about forty pounds per customer that they mm -hmm. that they've acquired from from about customer eight hundred thousand onwards mm -hmm. to one point five million. So I think what they've done is they've figured they've played in the cost model side by by changing the very core infrastructure to be extremely modern and extremely fast. Yes. What they've done is they've really changed the cost, also because they don't have a branch infrastructure. Sure. But customers love them. They won the which survey. Yeah, sort best of service, and that's the, the battleground. Yes. The only question I would say to you is, because I don't look at them as a particular one, but I use the generic of what uh, I've been looking at. The, the issue is, how many of the customers are primary? Mm. And, you know, there are lots of people who have challenger cards in their wallets, but they still get their salary paid into their primary bank. The second thing is, how many of them are profitable? Mm -hmm. And that means after every cost in the bank, including raising capital, all that sort of stuff. But thirdly, are the deposits primary deposits, mm -hmm. like salary, or secondary? Very important analysis, and it's not done well in the UK for all of this. So I've, because I've been studying it all, mm -hmm. trying to figure of out course, yeah. how we, even you can invest in and partner with to create more vo yeah. velocity and scale. What you want is, the best challenger model is one that is growing rapidly by taking market share, mm. not sharing market share, mm. and is taking the primary salary account, not a deposit from the salary account, and building that then into a multi-product challenger. That's the best answer. Would you buy the argument that a Trojan horse um, sees all of your um, transaction data and your everyday spend, um, take, ha gives you all of the cost of running the primary salary account, um, has most of the salary moved out into the everyday spend account, which then becomes a financial control center that is used by most of the customers and they see the, the everyday spend, that then allows them to have data to help mm -hmm. them lend in a different way because they've got a different platform. Uh, so th there's a question there, I think, strategically. And then secondly, they've probably got about, um, uh, I think it's less than 100,000, I need to check, that have now gone full salary. But if you wind the clock back, a year ago, everybody was saying, will they flip from prepaid card to full bank account? Yeah. Um, a year before that, it's, um, oh, it's nice, but it's just a prepaid card. Is there a possibility that in five years, uh, the primary salary account question becomes one of those previous questions? Or do you think there's, yeah. a, there's a bigger jump here that we're all missing? Well, I, I think I would certainly hope so. so, so <laughs> yeah. no, I, I do think, because unless you have competition regenerating, like every industry, yeah. we don't move forward at all. Completely. Um, I, I would, what, what puzzles me a little bit is that in the UK, the challenge to the big banks has been going on for, with many of the challenges, eight years in existence. Yes. And the big banks got bigger. Simple question. That's what I keep mm. studying myself. Why? Mm. And, and the, the fact is 3% of the people in the country switch bank accounts. Yeah. It's so that 
if the Big Bang's getting bigger and switching is inertia-based, how does it become a massive change in the dynamic of where we are today? That's a really and, fair. And, and what, what kind of time is it going to take to get there? The last dimension, which is fundamental to how I've been thinking about banking, is people have this full debate about this amount of activity mm -hmm. in a bank. And really... People are time poor in society and ever more so. So an integrated lifestyle offering that gives you every product and service, a brilliant service with great value back to you. How do you compete with that? And that's what I'm trying to create. I think that's not been done yet in the UK market and it would be extremely exciting to see it. And I, and I think uh, a Virgin brand gives a huge opportunity to do that. So I'm going to pivot us now to the questions that uh, I think uh, a lot of our listeners are uh, somewhere in their career in financial services yeah. or tech and we do have a lot of people that are just plain curious and seem to like us for some reason so <laughs> shout out to you guys um but but one of the things we always ask when we've got a ceo on or somebody who's who's done well in their career is for just a couple of top tips because mm -hmm. frankly there's a lot of people trying to make their way in life and, yeah. and uh you seem to have done okay um so dare i ask um what's your top productivity tip um to be honest it, it's i don't know if you could call it productivity but you start with the assumption that you never stop learning Mm -hmm. um, so the level of consumption, we talked about podcasts, but I have um, on a digital format on my iPad, I, have, I, I, I was just checking it last week because I was going through all the direct debits on my very cool app, Copy. Smooth. I respect it. But I was looking at it and I have 14 publications which I access, so internationally around the world, mm -hmm. in, in, in uh, The Economist model to The Washington Post, New York Times, to other countries in Asia I've lived in and elsewhere. And, and I have a lot of, um, so, uh, so the Christmas and I read about six books on topics of interest. And they don't all have to be about work. But the fact is, I constantly discover things I didn't know. Mm -hmm. like, constantly. And, it, and I seem not to be evolving because I'm always surprised. Um, <laughs> but, but it is amazing. And the world is changing so fast that you need to be a vociferous reader and learner to survive. And yes. ever since I was young, I was taught that in my first career that uh, no matter how good you are, everybody else is probably better than you at this. And, and this was the story that was always fed in my, I was in Goldman Sachs as a culture, and no matter what your job was, no matter how brilliantly prepared you were, somebody else thought, in the room thought they were better at it than you. So you have this thing where you constantly had an edge to learn, 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 learn. And then that creates productivity as a subsidiary element because when I'm on trains, I'll have a podcast and I, can, I, I will always have everything downloaded. So if I get the time, I'm scanning all the articles, I'm mm -hmm. looking at it. Specialist publications on particular topics, on macroeconomics, anything. And then a good autobiography mm -hmm. and then something that could be uh, more of a more literary nature. But it's the composite. And with my own kids, you know, I drive them mad they, because, you know, there's always a, just a pile of everything which I'm encouraging them to read and send them clips to. But if you're successful at that, you have a half a chance. The rest is down to a bit of luck and a bit of good fortune and mm. timing. But you have to be constantly of a view that you're probably falling behind. And if you have that healthy learning paranoia, mm -hmm. I think you'll always be more successful than less. Healthy learning paranoia sounds like the title of a podcast, but uh, <laughs> but we'll probably not call it that, but that would be a great title. Um, and then, you know, I, I was going to ask what's the biggest thing you've learned, but that's it. But other than that, where can people go to find out more about um, what you're doing at Virgin Money? Um, well, I think uh, there's lots of ways. You can go to Virgin Money or you can go to CYBG, but uh, you have... Uh, talk to David at cybg.com. Oh, very That's cool. an email. So if anybody wants to email me, I, I give it out to everyone in the, in the, in the bank and everyone in the country. So uh -huh. it's an email direct. And if you have an interest, I'll, I'll either answer it directly or I'll share it with the team. That's really cool. And you made me think um, of, of a question before I go, which is, um, you know, what are you excited about? Um, 
absolutely disrupting the business that I'm building. Um, so it sounds perverse, but when we're talking at this time of year, you start looking at strategy refreshes for the board. Yeah. And I keep saying to them that I honestly think that in 10 years' time, there'll be nothing like the banking architecture that we see today. Absolutely. And, and it's going to be very radically reframed. And I don't think there's a solution to the next model. I think there's a variety of models mm. and components. There's even a disaggregation of the banking function. So looking at what that is and trying to figure out how I can wreck my own party is is really the uh, the, the, the you've objective. Done it again, you've made me think of another question. You need to stop doing this. <laughs> So, uh, so, so we think about that a lot. So, um, I think from the technology to the process, I think more than anything, uh, banking has evolved, to my mind, from branch processes. And what we've done historically is we've made customers become, uh, through a digital channel especially, we've made them work our own banking processes mm -hmm. and, and pull the levers for us and progressively made that prettier. Is there room to think about, you know, kind of re-architecting the very way we work and, and think about the, the core stuff? You know, we talk about innovation to the core um, mm -hmm. and having a strong core, very popular with yoga and Pilates these days, but um, but, it, but is there room for that or, or really do you think it's higher up? Because as, as we're talking about strategy, uh, how do you take these startup approaches and do more experiments and, and do things that are less expensive that give you way more information and way more value? Because yeah. that to me is the interesting question that I, that I think, because you know, we've seen a lot of, you know, this is going to cost X billion, this is going to cost Y hundred million, but if I was a startup, I want, and if I'm a CEO, I want, I want a few other alternatives in that portfolio as well. And, and how do we do that? Uh, I, I think you have to figure out what you believe the outcomes are going to be in terms of the core outcomes. Mm -hmm. And for me, I think the, the consumer in the future owns their data universe. Interesting. And would license it to you. So you pay for the data. Right now, it's a giant ripoff. So suppose that were true. There's no such thing as Facebook because they, they, they exist on taking your data with or without your knowledge Absolutely. and selling it to other people. Absolutely. What, I in think that'd be like, it'd be like VHS tapes. You, know, you go back and look at it and go, well, that was crazy. So uh -huh. I, I don't think they exist. I think the, the evolution is back to the democratization of the internet. You go back and you own what's mine is mine. I created it. I, I represent all of those components. If you want to offer me something, you have to pay to play. And I, I think that model, yeah, that could be, uh, that would change the very structure of banking in its entirety, to your point of the core. The core is then just not relevant. Yes. Um, so you're accessing as a consumer through licensing your data the things you want in the service of you as an individual. It's not a bank giving you a banking product. A bank is enabling the data economy and, and, and empowering you in a completely different way, which I think is truly compelling. Uh, I think what's interesting about that is uh, how post-Cambridge Analytica, that's that's mm -hmm. something that you can see the, the seeds have changed. Uh, you can also see Sir Tim Berners-Lee has started to mm -hmm. walk in that direction himself. So I don't know if you've seen some of the some of the stuff he's been putting out about that subject recently, but it's well worth a read. Uh, uh, it's uh, a dangerous world because everyone said GDPR was brilliant and will take us all back into the land of owning and controlling our data. But the average consumer has an inability to focus for too long. Mm -hmm. And what you get now is pop-up cookies everywhere, which are reinstalling full access to your rights. Yeah, it's just bonkers. So G GDPR has been just erased in, in people's inability to pay attention. So, so you have this whole data fight that will go it, on. It became an audit and a tick box process. Exactly. And I think there's, uh, you know, in, the, in the age of data, what's more valuable to me and what does a bank do? Well, historically, a bank was a vault and it was where I stored my most valuable things. Mm. So what's more valuable to me than data? Mm. And I think there's an interesting question of then, well, how do I design the experience for a consumer whereby they have the data wallet? Because I've seen... So uh, I've seen Barclays try this. I saw mm -hmm. Verizon try it. I saw uh, 
gov.verify, the design and the, the, the tech architecture that you need for that, I'm yet to see somebody really grasp that. But thank you for going there with me because yeah. that was that was really <laughs> exciting and interesting and, and you kind of hinted at it. Uh, and that's the stuff that I think our FinTech Insider nerds really enjoy. So thank you for doing that. Um, and you've already told us where we can find out more, but is there anything you want to leave our listeners with before we go? No, just, um, just don't think that banking is banking as you know it. You know, and, and everything we've designed in banking has come from the customer design, not us. So the real future of this is, to your point about data wallets and everything else, is customers should design it, not you. And as soon as banks learn that lesson, I think we'll be in a better place. David Duffy, thank you very much for being here. Pleasure. Good to be here. Thank, thank you. you. Cheers.